You are listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of ICMforum.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Sol, and today we have something very special for you as we are joined by Kelly Faltas and Rowdy Van Dyke, the producer and writer director of the 2021 psychological horror film Like Dogs. I will be asking them about the making of their film and some of the challenges that come with releasing a film during the pandemic. So to start us off, tell us about your film and what inspired you to come up with the plot for the film Like Dogs. Well, th- first of all, thank you so much for having us on your show. This is uh, going to be a lot of fun. So one of the biggest inspirations for this movie was the Stanford Prison Experiment. Now, I'm not sure if you're familiar or if your listeners are familiar with what that is, but that was something that actually happened in real life at Stanford University back in 1971. There was an experiment, a psychological experiment, where uh, volunteers, students, um, were assigned either a role as a prison guard or as an inmate in a mock prison scenario. It was meant to last two weeks, but it only lasted six days before people started mentally breaking down. The guards were, were had a, a kind of a feeling of superiority and the, uh, and started beating the inmates, the inmates, their, their will started to break. They started to get depressed. They started to have all sorts of other physical issues and they ended up having to shut down the experiment. And the second thing that, that inspired me was the location. We found an abandoned animal shelter when I was location scouting for another film that I had been working on. And I walked into this giant kennel room, a room where we spend a lot of time in the movie itself. And there were these, what looked like cement cubicles in there and, uh, where they used to chain up dogs. I walked into that room and I, I just looked around and, and I was just overwhelmed with inspiration and I thought, I want to write a movie chaining humans inside of these little uh, kennels and uh, treating them like animals. And that was kind of, both of those were kind of the, the, the main ingredients for what would become like dogs. Um, and to answer the first part of your question, it's, a, it's, it's basically about a psychological experiment, a university-run experiment, where humans are being treated like animals. And things start going wrong, people start showing up dead, and uh, next thing you know, everybody involved is pretty much just racing to get out of there and see who survives. Lots of twists, lots of turns, lots of fun stuff. Yeah, no, excellent. Uh, Thanks for sharing. I agree there's lots of twists and turns in there. It's a film that keeps you guessing for a lot of the part during it, and yeah, lots of surprise revelations to come. Definitely. We wanted to, to keep things as unpredictable as possible. Uh, I have a deep love and appreciation for the horror films that I grew up watching, like Nightmare on Elm Street. Freddy Krueger was always my favorite. And Halloween and Friday the 13th, that kind of stuff. The, the, the kind of stereotypical slasher, bloody, gory kind of horror movies. But what always really made me really scared was what the the normal human mind was capable of what what evil secrets were normal looking people carrying uh that kind of thing so i thought it was much more fun to do kind of a psychological thriller exploring just how dark and twisted some of these seemingly innocent looking people can be and uh yeah that was that was also (laughs) one, one of the uh one of the things that led towards like dogs. Yeah, it's awesome. And I, yeah, I totally agree. The 
best horror films are ones where the killers don't exactly look like killers. They don't really look like evil people. I do have to ask about this uh, one film that I saw a few years ago. Go. The film's called Pet. It's got uh, Jeanette McCurdy in it, and it's about this guy is not able to, like, get a girlfriend, so he kidnaps her and then sort of, like, holds her or, like, keeps her captive inside this kennel. It's not quite like, like dogs, but that came to mind when I was watching the film. So I'm wondering if you've seen it or if you've heard those comparisons before. I personally have not seen that one, but it's interesting that you say that because uh, our international distributor, a company called Black Mandala, they did uh, artwork for the movie, uh, like poster artwork. And somebody told me that one of their versions of the poster was very reminiscent of the movie Pet. Um, but again, I, I didn't see it, so um, so I'm not entirely sure. But what do you think, Kelly? Did you see that one? I, I haven't seen that one. And, and again, thank you guys for having us on the podcast. Um, this is my first podcast ever. And, and fortunately, I have Randy here, our director, to <laughs> help me as he is very experienced. Um, but no, I haven't seen uh, Pet. I have heard of it, though. One of the questions I was going to ask later on, but I might ask an hour on the subject, with the um, artwork, it is quite interesting it's very striking i guess the um cover for the film or at least the one that's being promoted on letterboxd it's uh yeah it does really draw out i guess the horror of it you've got like this woman who looks like she's inside a little like um one of those carry boxes that you carry a dog or a cat in and you know it says every dog has its day you know it's just striking reds and all that and that sort of poster, when I first saw the film as available as streaming, that's sort of what drew me to the film. Because I'm like, oh, this looks interesting. But I was expecting more of, you know, maybe a torture a torture porn sort of horror film, whereas your horror film is more of a psychological horror film. So I was wondering what sort of input you guys had as producer and director into the poster artwork, or if you had uh, any input at all into it. Uh, <laughs> the only reason I'm laughing about you asking that question is because we had shockingly little input on it. We created our own poster, which is very reminiscent of a lot of 80s movies that I like. You know, the, the Drew Struzan kind of artwork where it's kind of like a montage of characters and situations and stuff like that. Something that was kind of like a real classic movie poster. Not necessarily a horror movie poster, but something that kind of harkened to a lot of the movies that I um, kind of adored growing up. And the distribution companies that we went with, both domestic and international, didn't like my artwork. So they both came up with their own. So... The uh, the idea of of having uh, a woman boxed up into a tiny little dog crate was not my idea. Uh, I thought it was fairly clever, and it's definitely evocative of some pretty frightening imagery. Uh, but the the biggest thing that we were trying to avoid is leading people to believe it was torture porn. Um, and even some of the early artwork that we got back from our international distributor that had uh, one of the artwork that they ended up with, and I don't think it's on Letterbox, but it shows. Uh, the couple of uh, characters, Lisa and Adam, hanging in these cages, holding hands. Um, 
that was that one was kind of safe, but there was one that was just the Lisa character in a cage, chained up, looking up like she's just been abused, and that one really felt like torture porn. So we were able to kind of tell them, "Hey, let's let's not go that direction." Number one, we don't want to mislead uh, any potential viewers, but also that's really not what the film is about. And and as you mentioned, you know, it's really a psychological thriller horror kind of thing, and and definitely not leaning into the torture porn. You know, um, as much as I love the Saw movies and stuff like that, I feel like it's been really overplayed, and it was territory that I really didn't want to get into. Not saying that it can't be done well, and it can't you can't have something new and original brought to the table, uh, but there have been so many, so many movies since Saw that are kind of uh, exploiting or copycatting that kind of torture porn vibe to it. I really wanted to kind of keep a, a good, clear distance away from that, even though there might be slight elements of that in this movie. It was a struggle just to have, you know, small changes made. Uh, we, I know Randy and other producer Amos and myself, we all had feelings and suggestions we offered, but just getting a little tweak here or there is, is about the best we could do. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we the biggest change we were able to get made is the, originally they had the title in a red font instead of white, and we got them to change it to white just so it would stand out more. But when it came to the artwork and the imagery specifically itself, they, they had their idea of what they wanted the thumbnail to look like on whatever streaming service they were going to be promoting it on. Um, so they were, were very adamant about kind of sticking to that. And since they're the professionals, they're the ones that, you know, specifically distribute these kind of movies, I deferred to their wisdom and I figured, well, they probably know what's best. But even if you were saying that you thought it might be a little bit more torture porn, then maybe I think that's what other people are going to be thinking as well. And that, and now I'm concerned about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that is kind of interesting. I was a bit aware of it myself because I'm not a big fan of torture porn in general. I don't even really like these Saw films that much. I think Hostel did it well because it was sort of tapping into you know some of the basic human desires that might come out with a torture porn scenario, but yeah, generally I'm not into torture porn. So I was actually a bit hesitant to watch it at first, but, you know, it was available on my streaming services. I was watching films for the horror challenge that we had in October on the ICM forum. And I was just like, oh, well, it looks interesting enough. We'll see how it goes. But yeah, it's something that's always fascinated me about films and the way they're promoted and like how much input the directors actually get into what the promotional artwork looks like because for people who have never like heard of the film or the directors or the cast or anything the one thing that's going to draw somebody to a film is the poster I yeah would definitely be, i would be interested in some time looking at some of the other poster designs that you had although you mentioned you had one where you had the um what the name of the main girl in the film you had the um lisa is the character lisa, name. yeah yeah you mentioned that you had a poster with lisa and adam both in it holding hands and that probably would have actually turned me off watching the film, not turned me off entirely. But, you know, the Adam character was one of the big surprises for me in the film because we originally think that it's just all happening to her and she is the only person there. And then that, for me, was actually a quite a big uh, plot deflection. So, yeah, I'd prefer that part personally to be unspoiled. So I don't know if the producers were onto something with that. But, yeah, no, I agree in general that the poster um, that they've chosen is uh, directed more towards the torture porn market. Yeah. I think the the true test is going to be to see in the long run how many people end up 
watching it and commenting and and letting us know uh, if they're disappointed with the lack of torture porn in it. <laughs> we we get all sorts of fun comments on IMDb and Amazon Prime and anywhere people can leave comments. Um, you get the people that really love it and they get it and they're into it. And then we get the absolute polar opposite, the people that hate it with a bloody passion. And, uh, but at least they're passionate about it. So, but yeah, the people seem to fall to one extreme or the other. There's not a whole lot of middle ground. Yeah. That's very interesting to hear about your reading comments. Cause I guess, um, I've pretty much given up reading on IMDb comments. Um, I guess, you know, I was first getting into film, you know, IMDb was the way to go, but you know, these days, you know, I'm more looking for letterbox for comments. So a lot of letterbox comments are just one-line reviews that don't tell you anything. But no, it is um, kind of interesting. Do you just sort of wonder with some of the films when you're commenting on them, who's actually reading them? I know with uh, Sean Baker, because he's on Letterbox, whatever he says, he doesn't read any comments for any of his films. Uh, I do sometimes wonder if I was a filmmaker, whether I would actually want to look through the comments or whether it's just something that I'll personally ignore. Honestly, I, I usually don't. And especially, I, I learned that from YouTube. Uh, if you've ever posted anything on YouTube or any kind of big public platform, if you have any kind of strong opinions one way or the other, you're going to have people that disagree and you're going to have people that become keyboard warriors, as they say, and uh, get nasty about it. But what changed things for this particular movie is we got a string of really positive reviews, a bunch of YouTube reviews that were positive, and then a bunch of uh, write-ups online that were really positive. And I got this false sense of, wow, maybe it's actually a pretty good movie. I mean, I, I'm kind of joking, because I, I, I like it, and I think it's a pretty decent movie. Anyway, I, I love it, so um, so I'm proud of it. But all of a sudden, I'm thinking, wow, we're getting all these good reviews. I'm going to get brave, and I'm going to start reading some of the stuff they say on IMDb. And I immediately regretted that decision. So um, I think I'm going to uh, take your advice and probably maybe cool it a little bit and back off on reading the comments because, you know, for, you know, you might feel pretty good reading some good ones, but all it takes is one, one nasty little thing that somebody says and it'll just strike a nerve or hit a little too close to home and it'll just remind me of why I don't like reading comments. And I think that's probably um, even harder for you randy because this was your baby from the beginning and i i love that um you and amos brought me on work as a producer on this uh, one of the things some of the things you've mentioned are what i loved about the script when i first read it um, just some of the surprising twists and turns and i i like i like something that says something about human nature or that explores character in some way and i felt that like dogs does that. Um, but yes, I, I've been reading the reviews too. And, and I found it interesting to see what people are liking about it or, you know, if they're not what it, what it is, but um, so it's been an education. <laughs> yeah. The, the thing that kind of stands out to me the most is the stuff that people like the most about it is usually kind of like the unpredictability of the story and the twists and people saying, wow, I've never seen it done quite like this before, or wow, I wasn't expecting where it was going, but I really liked it. But the, the, the ironic thing is those are also some of the things that people hate the most about it was, ah, there were too many twists or, oh, I couldn't, you know, if they couldn't figure it out in the first 
20 minutes of the movie, then, then it wasn't worth their time or something like that. But it's like, I don't want to figure it out that early. I want to be taken on a ride and not know where it's going to end up, uh, that kind of thing. So, um, and that's why I, I feel like the way that it was marketed or the expectations maybe that people have going into it might directly correlate to their enjoyment of it. You know, for, for example, Saul, you were saying you're expecting it to be uh, a torture porn film. Maybe somebody who's really into torture porn goes to try to watch this and they're like, wow, this is incredibly slow for the first 20 minutes. What's going on? Where's the blood? That kind of thing. And they're immediately turned off from it. Maybe they don't even finish watching the movie, but the next thing they're going to do, they're going to go to Letterboxd. They're going to go to IMDb. They're going to go wherever, and they're going to leave a nasty comment, whether they finish watching it all or not. Uh, so you never know what you're going to get. But the, the important thing is really to just take it with a grain of salt and not really let it affect future projects, that kind of thing. I think if anybody took their the negative reviews and negative comments of their movies too much to heart, they would just get out of the business entirely. But you got to have a thick skin and you got to look beyond that. And you got to realize that, you know what, there are probably the silent majority of people that watched it and do like it. Maybe they don't like it enough to comment about it or, or to post about it on a forum or a website. But uh at least they're not as enraged to to you know go and actually make a comment about it. I don't know. I just I just feel like there's probably more people that like it than don't. They're just not being vocal about it. I, I would entirely agree about that. Uh, the film's actually got you know a letterboxed average rating of above two point five. I think it's two point seven or something like that. So even though it's not a lot above the midway point, it's above the midway point, which means you know over half the people are watching it are liking it to some degree. Yeah. Uh, something interesting which you mentioned is you said that some people are commenting without even finishing watching it, which I guess is one of the um, maybe the detriments of film availability and streaming services. I guess it's easier to turn off a film after uh, partway through rather than walk out of a cinema uh, for a film that you know you might have paid a ticket to go and see. But yeah, I do think with like dogs, I think if people are turning out tuning out too early, I think they are missing out. There is definitely one twist towards the end and without revealing too much it's to do with all of the boyfriends which i thought was like really like overboard but in general the twists uh kept me engaged all the time through i didn't know where the film was heading and i actually love movies like that because what i thought would happen when i sat down and watched it is would slowly see this woman turn to be like a dog like after like a number of months of her being treated like this she'll start barking and growling and whatever like a dog but of course she doesn't because you take us in an entirely different direction and that's just something personally which I loved about it. Well thank you. I'm glad that that it kind of connected with you to the to that degree. And uh the part with the the ex-boyfriends it is definitely over the top. I will absolutely agree with you on that. <laughs> but but I, I I did that on purpose. I, I wanted it to feel big, and I wanted it to be a big reveal. And uh, and again, I don't really necessarily want to spoil anything for your audience either, so I'm not going to go into too many details. But the person who assembled all of those people into that one room, it needed to feel like a big, grand gesture. And uh, it felt like the way to do that was just to fill up a room with these people and then just shock her with it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good point. I might move on to something else then. So, sure. um, yeah, so this film has been released during the pandemic. So, you know, it's gone straight to streaming services. When I was talking to Kelly about it before, she said you actually filmed the majority of it before the pandemic hit. So I was wondering what were the greatest challenges of releasing a film or getting it out there during the pandemic? That's pretty interesting because, uh, 
the film was almost completely done by the beginning of the pandemic. And within a couple months in, we were finished. And uh, we had presented it to uh, our, our producer's rep, who basically acts like an agent who represents the film to try to sell it to, to different distributors. And he was telling us that, you know, with this pandemic right now, you, you would think because even though it had been a few months and all productions were shut down and new projects weren't being shot at the time, uh, because everything had been down for a few months, everybody was in post-production, everybody was in editing, and everybody was finishing all these films that had been shot before the pandemic. So there was a larger than average amount of films being finished and sent out to the market to, to try to get picked up for streaming platforms and all that kind of thing. So we were advised to actually hold on to the movie, sit on it for six months or a year, and wait until the pandemic had gone on longer, which come to think of it, this guy must have had some really good uh, sixth sense to know that it was going to be lasting for quite a while. But he was like, you know, sit on it for a little while, uh, because there's going to come a point where all these projects that are coming finished right now and are sold off and everything, um, they're all going to dry up. And then the services are going to be starved for new material, because no nothing new was being made at the time. So we ended up doing that. We sat on it for about six months and uh, before we, we shopped it out to the, to the distributors. And because of that, um, we were able to get some deals very quickly. And we got good placement in terms of being released uh, in the month of October. You know, it's scary movie season. Uh, so that ended up working out very well for us for the timing and everything. But it was really contrary to what we thought was going to happen. We thought, wow, here we are with perfect timing finishing this movie uh, just as the pandemic is raging. But uh, it turns out everybody else had the same idea, too. So waiting for the right time to strike was, was the right move. Yeah, that's very interesting. And my next question actually is about the streaming services, because this is something that has always intrigued me. I have no idea how it works. If you guys can shed some light on it, I'd be very curious. So your film is available to stream on several services. So it's on Tubi in a number of countries. And it's also on Amazon Prime in some countries. So I was wondering, how does that actually work? Do you receive royalties for each viewing? Uh, how do you actually get you know, something back from the people who are streaming it on those various services? So that's a good question. Um, the way it works internationally speaking uh so any any countries outside of north america that it has been distributed in we get paid by territory and it's a flat rate generally so for example let's say germany and any uh german speaking areas we would make a flat rate deal let's say i'm just throwing out a number um 10,000 euros or something like that and they have the streaming rights for that territory that way, it's not based on the number of streams or views or anything like that. Or they might even do a theatrical run, or they might do a physical media run. Um, we don't see any of that. We would only see the money from the initial flat rate sale. And it's basically like that most, most of the world except for North America. North America falls under the jurisdiction of our domestic distributor. And the way that works is uh, where they have put us up on a bunch of streaming platforms. And ones like you mentioned, like Tubi, that have advertisements, it's free, but with ads. 
ad revenue is pretty much the way that we would see any kind of profit off of that. Uh, on a service like Amazon Prime, I'm not entirely certain how that does work because that's something that's entirely handled by the distribution company and we don't really see any of the paperwork on that. We don't see how it breaks down in terms of uh, payment. But I do know some, some other filmmaker colleagues of mine that have self-distributed their films and have opted to put it up on Amazon Prime say that the way that they get paid there when they essentially upload their own film to Amazon Prime is based on the length of time somebody watches. You get X amount of money per hour of content watched. So if you have a 90-minute movie and you get 10 cents per hour, you would get 15 cents for a 90-minute movie per, per view if somebody watched it from head to tail. So, um, and again, that's a number I'm just kind of throwing out. Realistically, I think it's even less than that. Uh, it's not 15 cents. It's probably closer to five cents. I, I don't know the real number, but it's shockingly low and it would depress most people and probably steer them away from making films, uh, when they realize that, you know, you're not making money hand over fist for this kind of stuff. But realistically, that's the way that it works. Yeah, if it's ad-based uh, video on demand, like Tubi, then um, ads are what pays the revenue for it. Um, Subscription-based, like Amazon Prime, uh, it might be the length of time that somebody watches it. And then there is um, you know, your standard VOD. For example, if there was a cable provider that had it available uh, for somebody to rent for $3.99 or something like that, then uh, that's an actual pay-per-view kind of scenario, and then we would get a percentage of that. Okay, cool. No, it's, it's all very intriguing to know because I've sort of been, like, wondering, you know, you know, if I do, like, watch a film on Tubi and I keep playing it again and again and again, does the uh, filmmaker you know, does it necessarily get more money from it or is it just based on the initial view? But, yeah, it does sound like it's a lot more complicated than what it looks like, and I guess the main thing might be for you guys just getting it out there getting it seen getting some positive feedback so if it's getting like good reviews and everything is that going to help you get more funding for future productions absolutely yeah the more the more people like this one the more uh it it finds its audience the easier it will be to already have an audience behind you or maybe familiar with your work when you go on to make the next one what a lot of people do, especially with low-budget independent horror films, is they end up going the route of crowdfunding. Now, if you were to do that without any actors that anybody's familiar with or without any kind of name for yourself or a background in the genre to prove that you know what you're doing, it's going to be a very slow road, very hard road to do. But if you have a couple successful films under your belt, people might know who you are, then it's easier to get... It's easier to raise funding, it's easier to find named actors that people are familiar with, that kind of thing, and it's just easier to uh, get in the more desirable places in the market. And again, I'm, I'm really specifically referring to the, the horror film, the indie horror films, because uh, there's, a, there's a big, big market for it, but there's a couple key ingredients that you need to have to to really make sure that you find your biggest audience. And for this being our first outing into this genre, uh, personally, I came from a, a comedy background, and Kelly helped me produce my previous film, which was called Nonstop to Comic-Con, and uh, that one is is a, a comedy film. And uh, this is, you know, I wanted to try a little something different with 
this one. So I just dipped my toe into horror and I decided I really liked it. <laughs> so, so, uh, it's kind of inspiring me to want to do more. So, uh, it's important to have, to have a little bit of, I don't want to say success, but at, at least to have a decent film that's representative of your work out there in the market when you're trying to get funding for the next one. And I can say that's, um, that's definitely true in my experience, what Randy talked about. One of the first directors that I worked for, um, I helped him with fundraising and he had a cult following from one of his earlier films. And he was able, because of that, he was able to draw, uh, and his name's uh, Kenneth Mader in the film was Displacement. Um, unfortunately, he's currently struggling with personal health issues. Um, so I hope he is okay and can make another film. But I, when I was helping him fundraise, you know, we were able to upon the audience and his fans and then also um to help raise money from and to show you know evidence of success uh whether it's doctors in the community who maybe want a vanity credit or or whatnot when you're fundraising it's it's surprising to see who steps up to help fund an independent film um it definitely uh, you have to get out there and and do a lot of work to make make it happen and, and raise the funds but um it is doable and possible but again it helps a lot if if a movie has or a director has a following and yeah so hopefully um we can get more people watching like dogs and following there i'd love to see a sequel of this i'd love to see what randy does yeah no a sequel could be interesting or look any sort of follow-up horror, horror film would be really cool okay. to see I was just looking up there because you mentioned the uh, non-stop to Comic-Con and it's got, at this stage, it's got one uh, person who's viewed it on Letterboxd and I've managed to find a trailer for it on Vimeo. I know this is a bit off topic, but um, how did uh, the previous film get distributed? So that's a, <laughs> that's, uh, it's an interesting question because it's a little bit of a sore spot. <laughs> yeah. So um, that one is not publicly available right now because I of let's call it uh, uh, a legal issue but we did the festival circuit with it a number of years ago and uh it won over 30 awards played a bunch of different festivals all over the world and uh was very popular and i think has more imdb ratings than like dogs does so a lot of people did uh rate it and i don't know if there's reviews written for it there but um, so it hasn't been publicly released, unfortunately. And that's something that we're looking at uh, fixing in the very near future. Thankfully, it's the kind of comedy that I like to write and I like to do is timeless. It's not dependent on specific time and place. So um, even though it's been a couple of years since we shot that one, it won't feel dated at all when it finally does get released but we're hoping in the very near future that it's going to be available for people to watch as well and it'll probably be available on a lot of the same platforms that like dogs is currently but as of right now it is currently unavailable so but that's all i can really say about that unfortunately and i won't add anything to that <laughs> yeah no that's right it's uh, something uh good to look forward to eventually i'd be Curious to watch and see if I can see any connections between the two films. Um, I don't know if there will be, but I'm sure there might be some stylistic similarities. And there's one uh, cast member that's the same between the two movies as well. Okay. So I did have uh, one more question. So what do you guys look most forward to when filming in a post-pandemic world? 
I know that's not necessarily anytime soon, but it will eventually get to the stage where there'll be less restrictions. Uh, and I guess maybe what you're most looking forward to, and is there anything that you might miss about the pandemic environment for filming and releasing films? You want to go first, Randy, or me? <laughs> you can go first if you want. I feel like I've been uh, going first a lot. Sure, sure. Okay. Well, there is little I will miss about filmmaking in during a pandemic. Um, I did uh, produce one series called Phoenix Series in 2020. And trying to keep everyone safe when we were just barely learning things and, and you know, the COVID testing, you know, it's, it's just a huge worry. It's also a scheduling challenge, uh, trying to make sure everyone's tested before they come to a production. If you have to change actors or change schedules, then suddenly that's all you're rearranging things to make sure people can get tested again. It can add quite a bit to the budget, even like around 10%, more or less. And yeah, so it's it's a logistical challenge and can add a lot of stress. Um, the one positive thing I would say in this, I don't think this is true now, but it was much earlier on, is there wasn't a lot of traffic. So for me, driving in and around LA where, where we were filming, um, that was a pleasant surprise. Getting a location at a reasonable cost, uh, we filmed at a hotel, that was a wonderful surprise. Yeah, so so there were some perks, but now, you know, traffic is back and all those things are back. And now we're, we're still left with, you know, wanting to keep everyone safe and the struggles with COVID testing. <laughs> so that's still going, but I, I definitely won't miss it if that does go away. <laughs> I One of the things that I think I miss... And I just wrapped a, a feature that I was helping a friend shoot just earlier this week, um, a science fiction film called Alien Planet. And it was so much fun. And it had a very small cast, and they were all wearing prosthetics because they were all playing uh, different alien uh, races. And something that I that felt very stark to me uh, that I didn't really notice when you're around people that are just normal human faces all the time, but I noticed very much when I was around these actors that were in all these prosthetics that, you know, come lunchtime and we're taking off our masks. That's the only time on a film set you can take your mask off or take it down is, is while you're eating. It was, it just felt so weird looking across and seeing what these people look like without masks on. And I, I, I kind of came to this realization that I've been staring at people in masks so much between my day job working at a college in a film school. And then when I work on set, that when I actually see uh, people with their masks off, it feels weird and foreign to me now. And that's, that just feels bizarre to, to think about. But, uh, but it's, it's where we are now. Uh, so I'm looking forward to a time when, when we all can, uh, you know, just see each other's faces and not just uh, around the, the lunchroom, that kind of thing. But I will say that I'm going to miss two things about, about the pandemic. Number one, it's kind of on the, the polar opposite of what I just said about masks. I actually do enjoy wearing a mask because I haven't been sick in about two years. I haven't had a cold. I haven't had a sniffle. I haven't had anything. And it's been wonderful. And I work with college students who are constantly sick. Uh, and you know, before, before the pandemic, I was getting sick fairly frequently just from working with all these kids. But it's it's been kind of nice not having to worry about that the last couple of years. That's that's one of the things I'll miss, and maybe I'll I'll kind of carry it on for a while when I'm working at the college. I'll continue wearing a mask even after the pandemic is done. But the other thing was it was actually kind of nice being able to do a certain amount of work from home. 
there's a lot of stuff. It, it, it come, come to find out there are a lot of avenues within the film industry that don't necessarily require you to have meetings face-to-face or be working in the same building, that kind of thing, especially with post-production, but even even uh, pre-production, uh, being able to uh, meet virtually, share documents, and uh, be able to kind of have these living documents that everybody can be updating and creating uh, in real time is really nice. And I feel like they were still around before the pandemic, but people weren't really using them because they didn't really all necessarily know about them so much. But now it's something that I feel like we're kind of dependent on. And maybe we'll also carry forward with that as well. But I, I really like the fact that even though we were forced to be physically apart, we were still, we, we were never too far away to be able to be creative and still work on a collaborative medium like film. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, awesome. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about? Yeah, actually, I would like to make a comment on on our cast for Like Dogs. Uh, I was really happy with the casting process, and and Randy, you know, working with him as a director, that's one thing he's very much um, he knows what he's looking for. Uh, and but yet he was open to suggestions from Amos, the other producer, and myself. So I really enjoyed that part. But I do really like cast we worked with. And, you know, I could see them definitely going places in the future. Um, and, and that when he was mentioning some of the positive reviews we got, Annabelle Barrett, um, she was mentioned in several of those um, and Ignacio in our cast. So that's something I was really happy to see. Like it's something I saw during auditions and it's something I saw on set. And it was just really nice to hear some other people acknowledging um, their acting and, and also acknowledging that they're seeing this in a lo- very low, very, very low budget film, um, which you don't always, which you don't always find um, the best actors for those. And I, and I, so that's something I feel proud about. And, and of course, being in a single location is something that really worked for us as a low budget film. But, but, um, but yeah, definitely the actors. And I, I look forward to seeing what they do in their careers as well. Thank you for saying that, Kelly, because I definitely don't want to leave out the actors. They were amazing to work with. It was probably, like, like I said, I, I came from a world of comedy and I understood the, the value of cohesive ensemble cast, finding the right people to play off of each other, uh, finding the right personalities to embody these characters and uh, really make them their own. And I don't think we could have found a better cast. And I was so happy with who we ended up with. And Kelly's right. Some of the best reviews that we got really were praising the cast. (laughs) Not the writing, nothing that I necessarily (laughs) did. It was totally the cast, you know. And and that's great. And and like Kelly said, you know, when you're working with really low-budget films, oftentimes uh, you're not working with professional actors or you're working with people that are just starting out in their acting career. Uh, because those are the people that you can afford. But uh, with our particular cast, you know, we we had a couple of our cast members. This was their first feature film, but you would never know it because they absolutely brought their A game. They did amazing, and the neat thing is, everybody was genuinely very friendly with each other. And the way that we did it, because we shot out in the middle of nowhere, so we got an Airbnb, and we had all the actors staying together. For, for the duration of the shoot. So they could go home and rehearse their lines together. 
They ate their meals together. So they became very, very friendly, like family by the end of it. And uh, I think that really kind of shows on film, especially the characters that need to, to portray friends to be friends because they actually are still friends to this day. You know, here we are two years after the film was shot and, you know, some of them still talk on a, on a regular basis. And I think that's fantastic. But that's something that I'm probably most proud of with this entire project was putting the right people in it and uh, just trusting in them to get the performance to really make everything work the way that it does. And uh, they deserve so much credit for that. Do And while, while we're giving credit, I'll just give a quick shout out to the crew too that pulled everything together with limited resources and they did a great job. Absolutely. One of the benefits of working at a college, particularly in the film department, is we are always meeting the next generation of filmmakers. And uh, we try to do a project like this every few years where uh, I get to kind of take them outside of the, the classroom environment, outside of the academic environment, and say, okay, you've done student films. Now let's make an independent film. Let's make something a little bit bigger. And uh, it's, it's a great opportunity for them. They get great experience. And uh, it's a fun way to work with the crew that we've been teaching for the last few years. And here they are. This is kind of like their final test before sending them off into the, the wild, wide world of filmmaking. Oh, that's awesome, Randy. That's, that's so well put, and it's really great to hear. And, yeah, I'd say just everything comes together really well and like dogs. I did mention before that I wasn't a fan of a couple of the plot twists, but the whole thing does is a very professionally-looking film. It looks great, even though it's just a single location there. You wouldn't uh, be able to tell the uh, budget limits with the assets. They just look uh, great. And, yeah, the cast, yeah, they all seem very professional. It doesn't seem like amateur hour or anything. Everybody's in there. They're playing the roles well. And the terror that's felt by the characters is entirely believable. So uh, thanks, Kelly, and thanks, Randy, for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for, for having anybody- me. <laughs> no, that's all right. Thank you. For anybody who's listening to us, uh, try and find Like Dogs. It is streaming online on a lot of services. It's on Tubi and Amazon Prime in different countries. It might be available on one of those streaming services in your country. Okay, thanks for listening, guys. Uh, join us next time. You have been listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of ICMforum.com. <laughs>